Sunil Vidami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work. Every week, we delve into the uncharted territories of groundbreaking technology, innovation and mind-bending trends that are upending the way we work, live and play. Prepare for a captivating expedition to the zenith of human potential as we intelligently examine the challenges, opportunities and potential pitfalls that lie ahead. From the rise of automation and artificial intelligence, remote working and the emergence of groundbreaking new industries to decentralised workforces and radical income models, the explosion of virtual reality offices and the rise of digital nomads. The next shift empowers you to not only survive, but also thrive in this new era of work. Sunil Badami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. Only on Disrupt Radio. This is The Next Shift with Sunil Badami on Disrupt Radio. Working from home to hybrid workplaces. Finding the right side hustle or meaning in what you do. How to work with AI before it takes your job. Work is changing faster every day and the future of work is already here. How do you navigate office politics via Zoom? How important is diversity when everyone's working from home? And how can you manage a bad boss or that Gen Z intern? The Next Shift with Sunil Badami. We challenge and inspire you to adapt, evolve, and become an unstoppable force. I'm Sunil Badami. I've had more jobs than I've had haircuts, including as a journalist, broadcaster, academic, and researcher specialising in the future of work. And together, we'll explore the future of work today and how you can shift up to the next level, wherever you work, whatever you do. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. Despite the image we like to project of being laid-back larrikins who like a smoko in the arvo and who invented the sickie, Aussies are actually among the hardest-working people in the world, working more hours than many other countries in the OECD. There's no doubt that despite more flexible work practices, we're working more and more, and more and more outside traditional working hours, with 13% of Aussies working overtime. That's actually not far off the 15% of Japanese workers doing the same. And a lot of that's unpaid, costing workers thousands in lost wages and salary. So why are we putting in so much overtime? Is it the rising cost of living and rising interest rates? Or stagnant wages, which haven't risen in real terms for over a decade? Or maybe it's a new Aussie work ethic. But what are the consequences of all this hard work, apart from affecting work-life balance? Could it be burning out too? Today on The Next Shift, we'll find out why Aussies are working so hard and what it's doing to us, economically, professionally and personally. Hi, Sunil Badami here. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. Now, although we've discussed previously on the show about how economist John Maynard Keynes promised technology would give us a leisure society where we'd only have to work 15 hours a week, still waiting, John Maynard, 
Doesn't it feel like we're working more than ever? And it's just the vibe. Figures suggest Australians are working almost as hard as the famously hardworking Japanese. So why is this? What's it costing workers in the economy? And what can we do to do a little bit less? Eliza Littleton is a senior economist at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. She's a critic of conventional economics and interested in topics concerning employment and the future of work, tax reform and economic inequality. She recently co-authored a report, Call Me Maybe Not, Working Overtime and a Right to Disconnect in Australia about the epidemic of overtime in Australian workplaces. Welcome to The Next Shift, Eliza. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Eliza, it might have been John Kenneth Galbraith who once said that uh, economists are the experts who will tell us tomorrow why what they predicted yesterday would happen today didn't happen. And uh, John Maynard Keynes once predicted in the 1930s that as technology advanced, we'd end up working 15-hour weeks within a couple of generations from then, by the 50s or 60s. But we seem to be working more and more than ever before. Why do you think that is? I'm familiar with both of these quotes, particularly the Keynes one. I think that's really interesting. It's been coming up more and more because of the conversations around this shorter working week, the four-day work week. And I think it's really timely because it's addressing an, a huge issue that we're experiencing in our workforce that's been there for ages, that looming issue you just alluded to, which is overtime, the amount of work people are doing. We have a 38-hour work week, but something we can all relate to. In our dreams. In our dreams. Yes, exactly. That's the point. It's very common for people to be doing overtime. And so when I talk about overtime, I'm talking about working through your lunch break, answering calls on the weekends, maybe even while you're on leave on that holiday in Queensland to escape the cold Canberra winter. I'm talking from experience here. It's that doing teleconferencing at your kitchen table. And the Australia Institute did crunch the numbers on this. We ran a survey and it showed us that on average workers are doing four hours and 20 minutes of unpaid overtime per week, which I think is very relatable, but actually adds up to a lot. So over the whole year, that's about six weeks of unpaid overtime. That's more than we get in annual leave. And it's worth about $8,000 in lost wages. So a really big issue. It's not uncommon. I think we're all experiencing it. It speaks to issues in our workforce and our labour force. But Australians invented the sickie. Why are we working so hard, even more than Americans who are well known for being the land of enterprise and hard work? Why are we working so much? Yeah, I think this narrative that we're laid back in Australia, that we take it easy, that we know how to have a good time, we know how to party and we don't work too hard, is actually quite a myth. Most of the Australians I know, and I know that anecdotal evidence is not super reliable, they all work incredibly hard and they tell themselves that they're very chill and maybe could be working on their work ethic. But it's not true. And our, our survey showed us that it's not true. Huge amount of unpaid overtime being done. And some of the reasons that people identified in doing this unpaid overtime were reflections of external workforce pressures or workplace pressures rather than, say, the individual choices that people are making. So I think when they say that they're chill and they don't work too hard, that's probably a reflection of what they would like to do. 
things like that they have too much work, that there's staff shortages and people are filling in. So COVID has created a big problem around that. And, you know, that there's an expectation in their workplace or by their managers for them to do the overtime are things or the most common reasons people identified for doing that unpaid overtime. It seems weird, though, you know, that on one hand, the people who do have work are working so much harder, even when we're in a very tight and very competitive employment market with unemployment running at historically low figures of around just under 4% or just a little bit over 4%. So why are so many people working so hard? Is it because of the low rate of unemployment? And surely if there's a premium on supply of the workforce you know, that there are less workers. So technically, shouldn't those workers be getting better conditions to keep them given employers can't find more workers? Yeah, it's a really good observation, right? Unemployment is really low. So there should be less competition for existing jobs, which means that should put more power in the hands of workers to be able to firstly get jobs, but also negotiate for better conditions and wages in their jobs. The devil's in the details here, and we've really got to break down what kind of work exists in our workforce. To answer the question, I think basically there's been a huge rise in insecure types of work. So casual work or gig work and things like that. So yes, a lot of people are employed, but what kind of conditions are they employed in? And do those working conditions afford them power to negotiate for better wages and better working conditions? Probably not. Add in the fact that we're in a cost of living crisis. And actually what you find is that the kind of rates of multiple jobs holdings is higher than it's ever been. So There's a lot of financial pressure on workers at the moment considering the inflationary environment, their wages are going backwards, and maybe the types of work they're engaged in are not very secure, so they can't negotiate for better conditions, but they also might have to have multiple jobs. So they're very reliant on their jobs and not necessarily afforded the power that low unemployment might give them. You're on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, and we're working overtime with the Australia Institute's Eliza Littleton. Okay, that's the economic reason, right? But is there a kind of cultural reason why people feel they have to work so hard? There's always examples of countries with extreme work ethics, say, for example, Japan or Korea, where people will work till they drop dead at their desk. What's happening in Australia? Is it purely an economic thing where people have got lots of different jobs or they have to take lots of different jobs to cope with the cost of living crisis? Or is there a change in the Australian work ethic? You're taking me a little bit outside of my comfort zone, moving from economics to culture. And of course, these things are mutually reinforcing, right? I, as an economist, see material conditions as being a really big influence in shaping our lives as individuals, but as society on a whole. And so, of course, I'm going to point to the way that we are financially reliant on work. But of course, There are cultural elements, our economic system, capitalism. There are institutions that kind of perpetuate the cultural components of capitalism. For example, consumerism and individualism, these things, uh, you know, embedded in our culture. Coming back to Keynes' point about 
the fact that in in the future from the 1930s we'd be working 15 hour weeks part of that was that he he suggested we would be integrating technology into the way that we work so we'd actually be able to produce more and more things with the same amount of inputs as in the same number of hours worked and he was right in the sense that we actually have the capacity to produce so many more things now. I think what he was wrong about was he didn't really predict the fact that instead of holding consumption constant, what's happened is that people are spending more money as well. And there's obviously an underlying incentive that capitalism produces, which is around the accumulation of capital. So profit, the profit motive really has a lot to do with shaping the cultural desire to consume a lot of things, so to buy lots of goods and services, particularly things that we don't necessarily need. And as a result of that, we need higher wages, we need to work more hours. And yes, absolutely, that is embedded in our culture as well as our workplace expectations. And I think a lot of people experience kind of competitive workplaces where they want to get a a promotion or something like that. They're competing with other people who are doing a lot of overtime as well. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on people to to work more than they maybe need to. But when we look at it, despite all this hard work and overtime that we're putting in, as you point, have pointed out in your report about overtime, which I love the title of it, call me sometime, maybe not. Yeah, call me, maybe not in brackets. <laughs> in brackets. <laughs> Despite all the hard work and overtime we're putting in, and we're kind of at the pointy end of countries in the OECD where, you know, 13% of workers in Australia are actually putting in more work in terms of their mandated hours. And we're not that far off Japan at around 15.1%. That shocked me. But despite all of that hard work and overtime, why has productivity fallen around 4% over the last couple of quarters? In March, the Productivity Commission released its kind of five-year prediction around annual productivity and showed that Australian productivity only grew about 1.1% over the decade to 2020, which is kind of interesting when you consider, say, a country like Ireland, which only has, I think, half or even a third of the people in Ireland work overtime, has nearly double the productivity of Australia by comparison. Why is that? Why are we working so hard for such little gain? <laughs> so there's a lot of components to the question, I think, but maybe we should start with a de definition of productivity. So we we can problematize this indicator. I think part of the issue when it comes to the use of these economic terms in our political environment is that they get they, that we over-ascribe their capacity to indicate what's going on in the economy and we put a lot of weight in them and in the way that they're calculated. So productivity is basically a measure of output based on input. So if we're talking about labor productivity, my capacity to how like my capacity to pick, say, mandarins within an hour, how many mandarins can I pick based on the input of being one hour of my labor? Say it is 100 mandarins in an hour. Productivity is that 100 mandarins with the input being my labor of one hour and potentially whatever else I need to help me pick those things. So that's what productivity is. I've created output based on input. Productivity growth, again, is a different thing. So productivity growth is... Say I start this job and I can 
pick a hundred mandarins in an hour, but I get a bit better at it because I've learned how to be better at it. And now I can pick 200. So it's been productivity growth because now I pick 200 mandarins. It's a very simple concept, except when you try and aggregate it over the whole, over multiple industries and occupations. So output is different for all different industries and occupations. And we need to be able to add them all together and create a number that says, this is how much our economy produces. And the inputs are also very variable as well. So there's labor and you can measure that in terms of number of hours and things like that. But there's also capital inputs, the kind of machines that we use to do our jobs. There's raw inputs like any kind of other kind of raw material that's being introduced into this equation as well. What this tells us about productivity is that it's actually a little bit arbitrary, the way that it's calculated. So we put a lot of weight on productivity and don't get me wrong, it is really important. But it's really important to also understand that this is not the only measure of whether things are going well in the economy. And there's also, for example, whether the Productivity Commission is involved involved in that study that they did, they've created a couple of assumptions put into their model that produced an outcome that suggested that productivity hadn't grown. So basically you're saying we can't compare not so much apples to oranges as apples to mandarins. (laughs) It is important to understand there's only so much that productivity as a measure and productivity growth can tell us about the economy. Having said that, there's there's a period of where there's looking at productivity over the short term and there's looking at productivity over the long term as well. And it's important to consider how productivity comes about as well. So things like People can work really intense hours, but if it's not sustainable, that is not necessarily useful for productivity in the long run. Actually, the best things that we can do to boost productivity in our economy is to introduce labour-saving methods into our productive processes. So things like automation, which help us make things quicker. And Although a lot of people are very concerned that kind of automation is so labour-saving, it might actually lose them their jobs. Of course. But again, probably an oversimplification. The way that our labour force has changed in the past and the way that we've adopted and included technology into work in the past has happened in slow as a slow process. There's nothing to suggest that it's going to speed up. And in saying that, Automation often doesn't take over a whole job. It takes over smaller tasks to make someone more efficient at their job. And again, that's productivity enhancing because it increases the amount of output that person can produce within a certain period. Oxford Brookes University in the UK suggested that productivity in offices anyway had increased anywhere between 70 and 500% between the 1960s and the early 2000s or the 2000s. And we can see that. Eliza, when I started work in the last century or even the last millennium, you didn't have computers at your desk. You had to write out a letter and then take it upstairs to the typing pool and then they would type it and then you would have to take it downstairs to the photocopier and then you would have to put it in an envelope. And now you can do all that from your phone. So why hasn't technology delivered that kind of labour-saving benefit? I would say it absolutely has. And we, we have seen a lot of productivity gains in our economy over the longer term. So over decades of time, as we've incorporated these labour-saving technologies into the way that we produce things, 
productivity has increased. And what we've got to remember is, again, productivity growth is about saying it's a measure of time. It's a measure of the amount of output that increases as a result of introducing a labor technology. But it's a certain point in time. And once you've introduced that, you're not necessarily going to derive any more growth from that thing in our workplace as well. So again, critiquing the use of and the sole kind of prioritizing of this measure of productivity growth as being the only way to understand benefit progress in our workplaces. But what I'd also say is this, and of course, it would be remiss of me to not mention the fact that yeah, one of the things that has been dragging on our productivity growth over the last couple of decades is the fact that the composition of our economy has changed. When it comes to producing goods, actually, uh, goods producing industries tend to be a lot more productive because it's very easy to measure input and output, right? Goods can be counted. But then when we move to the services, and we've seen a huge upswell or increase of services in our economy. So it's a lot, we're a lot more geared towards delivering things like age care and disability care, child care. Our health industry is expanding immensely. That's one of the biggest areas of employment growth in the future. These are what we call labor intensive industries. And because wages are some of the most expensive inputs into production, labor intensive industries tend to not be as productive according to these very tradition these these definitions and measures of productivity. So of course that is a trend that we're observing that's also slowing down this kind of productivity growth that we're trying to observe using these indicators. So apart from the costs to workers in foregone pay, what are the other costs outside of the economics? of overtime to the community, whether it be health or social or whatever? Yeah. So we can start off with what we found in the survey, which was there are quite a few different consequences of doing unpaid overtime and working excessively. There's the things that we experience physically. It's exhausting to stand on your feet all day, potentially in retail or hospitality or be thinking about writing or doing research or looking after patients in a hospital, there's physical exhaustion from doing that for a really extensive period of time. Of course, there's the emotional stress and anxiety and people identified that as being one of the most common kind of consequences of doing overtime. And then just being mentally drained as well. And I think that's something we can all relate to after a long shift, getting home and experiencing all those things at once. <laughs> but the other thing is, of course, when we're doing paid work or unpaid work, but we're at work, it really eats into our capacity to build our social relationships or be with our families, look after children, care for our parents, do that kind of social relational work that's very important to our well-being as well. So these are some of the kind of most common consequences of doing unpaid overtime that detract from our work-life balance. Basically, what it tells me is that our industrial relations laws are not adequate at protecting the kind of work-life balance that is best for people, in best for workers, basically. And it's not being done in accordance with what people want or what they need. We've talked before about how the kind of measures of an economy's health, GDP or productivity, they look at the numbers or kind of assume data. And the Federal Treasurer, Dr Jim Chalmers, made a key point during the last election campaign in 2022 about 
a kind of well-being budget or a well-being economy. What do you think that means in terms of the ways we're working or ways we could work, especially given how much overtime we're doing at the moment? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting potential addition to the budget. I'm not sure about you, but when I looked through the most recent budget that came out, didn't see anything on the wellbeing budget. So that's fallen off the agenda and I'm not sure where it is. And I think what he's was probably figured out is that actually it's a very hard thing to do. Of course, there are countries around the world who are measuring well-being and looking at their policy arrangements and their policy settings and proposals from a well-being perspective. Like Bhutan with its gross national happiness. Yeah, but even closer to home, New Zealand has a well-being budget. But yes, of course, it's it's a subjective thing where you're choosing a bunch of variables that matter and you're saying these things we're going to measure, this is what we're calling well-being, and we're going to try and look at our policies and see how that interacts with these handful or this basket of variables that we're going to implement. So I think it's great to refocus and emphasise the importance of well-being. It helps to lead our policy in the right direction because, as you said, indicators can be really misleading. But I think in at the end of the day, it's actually going to be a very difficult thing to do and we should heavily scrutinise the process that they choose to adopt. Eliza Littleton, thank you so much for working overtime on explaining to us what's going on with overtime on The Next Shift. Thanks so much for having me. Well, if we're putting in all that overtime, what are the risks of burning out? Reports suggest a blowout in burnout in recent years. We'll find out why that is and how to identify and manage it with an Aussie academic who's conducting groundbreaking research on burnout that's changing the way it's diagnosed and treated after the break on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami. Disrupt Radio, where knowledge is currency. With all that overtime we're doing, no wonder so many of us are feeling burnt out. We often use the word to describe how exhausted we are, but there's been very little scientific research on exactly what burnout is, what its symptoms are, and how to manage, recover, or even avoid it. But with a blowout in burnout cases over the past few years, researchers at the University of New South Wales are now conducting groundbreaking research into this growing problem. Dr. Gabriella Tavella is a research officer at the University of New South Wales Discipline of Psychiatry and Mental Health in the School of Clinical Medicine, whose PhD research focused on determining how burnout should best be defined and measured, and who also examined burnout's overlap with clinical depression. She and her research team focus on understanding the best ways to diagnose and treat burnout, depression and bipolar disorders. And she's the co-author of Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery with Gordon Parker and Kerry Ayers. Gabriella, what is burnout? So burnout's been defined in the literature as comprised of three main symptoms. So that would be feeling exhausted, feeling a lack of empathy or a lack of connection to your work or the people you work with, and then also a sense of reduced professional accomplishment. So that is how it's been defined typically in the research literature, but we have been looking at expanding that definition to include additional symptoms of some low mood and anxiety 
as well as social withdrawal. And then also on top of that, we find that a lot of our participants report having a lot of cognitive problems like memory issues, concentration issues, things like that, that they think is associated with their burnout. What's the difference between burnout and rust out? So the research isn't great. It's a bit ambiguous in terms of the differences between the different stages of burnout, but we kind of see rust out as an early stage where you are still burning out. So you're not completely burnt out. You're still able to go to work, but you might be feeling quite disengaged from the work and maybe that presenteeism. So, you know, you're still at work, but you're not productive anymore versus where you're completely burnt out, where even going to work might be too daunting. You're at that end stage of the spectrum, you know, where you're really struggling. So we think that might be the distinction, but the research isn't great. So we're currently doing a study where we're looking at trying to tease out the differences between I guess, rust out or what we call burning out versus complete burnout and what interventions might be better at each of those stages. Why does it seem so many people are burnt out at the moment? It seems like there's been a big rise in people feeling burnt out. It's hard to say whether more people are burnt out now than they were pre-pandemic because we were researching it pre-pandemic. But because our work environments has shifted so much, it seems appropriate to say that since people have been working from home more, there is the issue where our work life and our home life, the lines have kind of been blurred uh, because your work environment is now, for people in office jobs, it's more likely to be work and home environment combined. And so that might explain a little bit why burnout seems to be increasing because we're now expected to be on call 24-7. What are the main causes or contributing factors to burnout? I guess things that people would assume could cause burnout. So things like working, being overloaded at work, working overtime, other things like not being adequately rewarded or recognized in your role and not having any control. So a lack of autonomy in terms of decision making at work. But we've also been looking at whether factors in your home environment will also contribute to burnout. So being overloaded at home or being primarily responsible for home and care duties. Or having, teena- having teenage children. <laughs> looking after teenagers, looking after babies, looking after elderly parents as well. So those kinds of things. And then we've also been looking at whether, um, well, there's a few studies looking at whether personality contributors can increase your risk of developing burnout really interested in looking at whether perfectionistic personality traits can kind of put you at risk at oh, developing burnout, regardless of kind of what job you're in. What are the potential consequences of burnout on a person's physical and mental well-being? With a lot of anecdotes that we've been hearing from participants is that there are a lot of physical consequences. So things like struggling to get over the common cold, just feeling exhausted all the time, and we've had also really extreme stories of people collapsing, being unable to get out of bed, things like that. And we're currently running a new study at the moment because we kind of want to look at those physical symptoms a little bit more in more detail. So that's where we're currently at with the physical side of things. But in terms of the mental consequences, as I mentioned earlier, people seem to be reporting that their cognition is really affected by burnout. So they feel as though they can't concentrate or remember things. 
notes and you have to reread things because you can't focus. And then, of course, that kind of has that added on effect, of a bit of a circular issue where that kind of makes you your performance is lower at work because of the cognitive issues, which might then exacerbate the burden further. And then also on top of those kind of more cognitive concerns, we've also got things like low mood and some symptoms that are associated with depression can be linked to burnout as well. And then also things like anxiety, excessive worrying, lots of things like that are associated with burnout as well. I mean, they do sound symptoms of depression. What's the relationship between burnout and depression? It kind of sounds like the chicken and egg. You know, does burnout cause depression or does depression cause burnout? How are the symptoms similar and how can you distinguish the difference? There is a lot of questions whether burnout is a thing or whether it overlaps too much with depression to be considered like a distinct entity. What we do know is that it seems that people that do have burnout will usually have low mood or feeling really flat. And we've also identified in our studies that a lot of people do have what we call anhedonia, but what that means is a lack of interest or pleasure in the world around you. The things that used to make you excited or get you looking forward to things. So that kind of goes away with burnout too. The question is, what's the line between burnout and transitioning into depression? At the moment, the jury's still out. With depression, the causes are more likely to be things that will affect your self-esteem. Whereas with burnout, the causes might are more, I guess, structural. So even if they're work factors causing both, with depression, it's more likely to be things that will affect your self-esteem. So if you're getting bullied at work, for example, whereas with burnout, it might more be that you're overloaded at work. So there's some of the differences we seem to be finding. But as I said, there's a lot of debate in the literature and we really suggest that you need to, if you think that you've got burnout, it's important to consider whether depression might also be at play because we really don't want people missing, mislabeling their depression as burnout or vice versa because then they won't really be getting the right treatment. So yeah, good to go to a doctor or a mental health professional kind of tease out what's really going on. You're on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, and UNSW's Dr. Gabriella Tavella on what burnout is, what causes it, and who might be most susceptible to it. It's interesting because often ADHD diagnoses and depression diagnoses are very similar as well in terms of the symptoms and stuff like that. So how does ADHD contribute to burnout? Going back to what you were saying about perfectionists potentially more likely to suffer it. Haven't seen much in the literature about ADHD and people examining ADHD and burnout crossover specifically. I think that's because the depression overlap is the main thing that people are looking at. But I guess in terms of those cognitive issues I was talking about before, so things like difficulty concentrating and you're not being able to focus, of course, that is like a key symptom of ADHD. So it also there could be a bit of a chicken and the egg scenario in terms of feeling overwhelmed at work because you're not, you feel as though you're not productive, you're not getting things done, but you could also maybe have these attention issues that were already there. Um, you know, it's, Again, it's hard to kind of tease out the differences, but again, going to, you know, a doctor, a mental health professional will be able to give you a bit of clarity in terms of what's really going on. Because I know with ADHD, for example, usually there's evidence of that popping up in childhood. 
Whereas burnout might be something that you've never really experienced until now, say you're an adult or an older student. So yeah, really looking, going to those mental health professionals is what I would recommend in terms of trying to tease out those differences. Now you mentioned people who are more susceptible to burnout. What about industries or professions that are more susceptible to burnout? What are they and why would they cause burnout more than others? So we think that it is industry where there is famously a lot of demand on the workers, but the supply of resources is usually low. So that's going to be a lot of the time the human services industry jobs. So that would be things like being a health professional, so like a nurse or a doctor, as well as being a teacher, things like that. Because the demands on the workers are not just those cognitive demands, but also emotional demands because you're working with people and you're dealing with other people's issues that they're presenting with. So that can be emotionally taxing for the worker. Burnout's been studied a lot in doctors and nurses, but there are other occupations that are now gaining more recognition. So things like lawyers, um, Peter. People in the clergy have been, people have been studying that as well. And then we're really looking at whether people who don't work in traditional roles, so they might not be formally employed, but they're primarily responsible for home and care duties, whether that's going to lead them to experiencing this same type of burnout as well. It's really interesting because all of the kind of professions that you've just mentioned are very face forward, frontline, human interaction type of occupations. So does that mean burnout will rise in those occupations who, which aren't kind of just taken by AI? Because it kind of seems the old saying, hell is other people, kind of applies to burnout. The question, I guess, is whether people who aren't in her human services jobs, so if you're working in a traditional office job, whether, like you can experience burnout in those contexts, but whether that burnout is the same as the type of burnout that's experienced in the human services center. Because with AI, if that's going to be able, if that's going to be taking over your job, that could also be another cause of you becoming overwhelmed and could contribute to your burnout. But then, as you said, people in those human services jobs, that's not really a factor. But we know that the emotional demands of that work can lead to burnout. So I guess the question is not really can you experience burnout across these different occupations? We think that you can, but whether that burnout is exactly the same and whether it should be treated the same way across the different industries still deserves a lot more research. What's the rate of burnout in chocolate tasters? <laughs> I feel like if I worked as a chocolate taster that I would never be experiencing symptoms of burnout again. <laughs> I don't think I would either. And you can add to that massage assessor and uh, wine taster as well. So how did you first become interested in burnout? My boss, who's a psychiatrist, he was getting referred a lot of patients with de- well to be assessed for depression. And when he was seeing all these patients, he was starting to think that maybe depression didn't quite fit the bill for a lot of them. And it was kind of looking like maybe there was something else going on, which might have been burnout. So then we decided to look at the research literature because he, as a doctor, he never really got trained about burnout in his psychiatry studies. So we wanted to see where the research was really at. And when we started looking, we kind of realized that there was a lot of questions left to be answered. And that's kind of how we started going in and coming up with our research studies and exploring the topic in a bit more detail. Now, 
For years, the Maslach burnout in inventory, the MBI, invented by Berkeley's Professor Christina Maslach, has been used for years to assess and measure burnout. And as you mentioned, particularly in the health sector. And you and your team came up with what you call the Sydney burnout measure. So how is it different and how does it build on or improve on the MBI? And so the MBI, I guess, is what is considered the gold standard because it has been around since the 1970s, early 80s. And I mentioned earlier those three main symptoms of burnout, exhaustion, lack of empathy and reduced sense of reduced professional accomplishment. They come from that MBI measure. And there's been a bit of critique about the measure, wondering whether it captures enough symptoms of burnout um, or whether some other prominent symptoms have kind of been left off. So we wanted to examine that in a bit more detail. So we came up with a whole bunch of different symptoms that might be associated with burnout. And we included in that depression symptoms as well, because we knew there was kind of this overlap, as well as cognitive concerns because we thought that might be linked to burnout as well. And what we found in our participants was that three NBI symptom sets, they did come out in our participants, so that's included in our measure. But then on top of those three symptoms, cognitive issues as well as depression symptoms and that lack of interest or pleasure in the world around that I talked about earlier, withdrawing from the world around you, they seem to be, you know, really prominent in burnout as well. So those symptom sets are also included in our measure on top of the MBI symptoms. So how can you tell if you're burnt out, depressed or just sick of your job? How can you or your health professional help you diagnose it? And what can you do to prevent, manage or recover from burnout? Stick around and find out how that works on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, after the break. So how did you collect the data for the SBM to come up with the measure itself? To start with, we got people who, I guess, self-identified as experiencing burnout and we kind of gave them this whole big list of symptoms and we wanted to see what they reported as prevalent for them. And then we did a technique called factor analysis where it kind of looks at all of that data and it kind of spits out the things that are most prominent in that data set. And we use that to kind of shorten the list of items. But then we have since given the new kind of list, the new measure to, we've given it to, we've done it in a set of dentists and a couple of other occupations. And we've tested that measure and then compared it to the MBI. And we found that they do correlate the two measures. So they are associated to suggest that they are picking up on something similar But then on top of that, our measure is kind of picking up on some other pertinent symptoms that might have been missed in that MBI measure for participants. So given that the MBI has some shortfalls, especially given how old it is and how much work has changed since then, including new jobs like, say, social media manager that didn't exist in the 1970s, how can people get their burnout accurately diagnosed. Is the SBM, the Sydney Burnout Measure, being rolled out to health professionals? We do have the measure that can be used, I guess, to kind of preliminarily assess what's going on. And so that's been published in a book that we published a couple of years ago. And then also in a couple of research papers, the measure is published online as well. 
but we do suggest that, you know, you kind of use and the measure or any measure of burnout, whether it's the MBI, the MBM, there's a few other ones out there. You, that should just be used as a starting point. And then it is really important to kind of assess whether seeing a health professional, a mental health professional or a doctor might assist you in kind of, they can use their clinical judgment to kind of pinpoint what's really going on and help with that diagnosis and especially that question as to whether burnout seems to be the main issue or whether depression might be more relevant. So don't forget, people, make sure you do get that referral from Dr. Google. Tell me, Gabriella, what are your tips to or strategies for preventing, dealing with or recovering from burnout? So it's tricky because the research on burnout treatment isn't great, which seems to be the case with a lot of burnout research. There's a lot of questions that are still out there. And it's a bit of a shame as well because a lot of the treatment studies focus on individual strategies rather than those structural level changes that can happen within an organization. But what we know is that think from an individual perspective, things like meditation, practicing mindfulness and exercise seem to come up in a lot of studies as being, I guess, the most helpful to kind of help reduce some of those symptoms associated with burnout. And th- that is because they, those strategies have not just, you know, psychological benefits in terms of helping you to relax and things like that, but they've been showing in studies to kind of reverse the biological changes that are associated with burnout. So things to do with the amount of stress hormones that are pumping through your body and how that kind of changes your internal functioning in the long term. So that's why those individual strategies come up as being helpful. In terms of broader strategies, where there are some studies looking at structural changes, it seems to be that reducing the amount of admin tasks that people are required to do in their role might be, you know, a good starting point. So people can do the main parts of their roles that are needed without these extra added on tasks on top. And then even if you're working from home, trying to really make a fine boundary between what is considered your work responsibilities and when you are switching off, that is really important because it's that blurring of that line that can kind of increase that risk burning out. How long can it take to recover from burnout and what effect can it have on a person's career trajectory? It kind of depends what stage of burnout you're in. So at the moment, we are just, we've just started running a study to kind of look at the difference between people who are still burning out versus people who are completely burnt out. Because if you can kind of tackle it in that burning out stage, what we're thinking is that it's quicker to recover versus if you're completely burnt out, you might need to make some more drastic changes to kind of get back to how you were feeling before. So our study on that is currently happening at the moment. So we're still kind of trying to work out what strategies are best for the different stages. But we know in our book, for example, we interviewed a lot of people with burnout. And for some people, they did have to make these drastic changes. So in terms of their career, some people had to quit their job and find an, and find another job that was more conducive to better mental health. So that can be kind of a drastic solution. But if you can kind of catch the symptoms as they start happening, rather than waiting until, you know, you're completely at the other end of the spectrum, can't get out of bed, that area, you are more likely to be able to kind of tackle it. And if you can approach people that you work with, maybe like your manager, talk about 
what's going on for you and they might be able to work out a plan with you to kind of get you back to how you were feeling before, we would say that prevention is really the best treatment. So trying to notice those symptoms as they're popping up. Gabriella Tavella, thank you so much for helping us feel the burn. I hope I'm not in a job interview for chocolate tasting gigs coming up in the near future. I think I should change my career path. (laughs) Thanks again. Thank you very much. Look, it's clear we're working more and more and it's having serious side effects from unpaid wages to lost family time. The personal costs of overtime and burnout to workers are great, but the potential costs to businesses and the wider economy are even greater. Presenteeism, quiet quitting, recruitment and training costs when people leave, falling productivity and profits, higher absenteeism, greater healthcare and disability costs down the line. As we saw in our episode about the four-day week, working better doesn't mean working longer or harder, just smarter. And that means ensuring adequate time to rest and recover. Many workplaces and organisations are taking steps to do this, such as limiting out-of-hours contact. But as well-being comes to the fore for many workers, more will need to be done, not only to keep workers from leaving, but to ensure that they stay and work longer. And if you're feeling burnt out... Take care of yourself, be kind to yourself, ask for help and take a break. You might call your work your living, but don't let it overtake your life. With that, it's time to clock off this shift. Thanks to the Australia Institute's Eliza Littleton and to Dr Gabriella Tavello of the University of New South Wales. You can find out more about what Eliza and the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work do and their other research and reports at australiainstitute.org.au and download her free report, Call Me Maybe Not, Working Overtime and a Right to Disconnect in Australia. And go to your favourite online book retailer to grab a copy of Daniela's book, Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery. And if you're feeling burnt out or suspect you might be getting burned out, why not help Gabriella and her team understand more about burnout and how to treat it at the Black Dog Institute. They're doing a research study. Just go to the Sydney Burnout Study, Pursuing Its Causes, Progression and Treatment Pathways at blackdoginstitute.org.au. Have you experienced burnout? How did you recover? What did you do to change your lifestyle or your work patterns so that you could manage it? And what are your tips on avoiding, managing or recovering from burnout? We'd love to hear your thoughts on our socials on Facebook, Insta, Twitter and of course LinkedIn. This is Disrupt Radio. I'm Sunil Badami. See you next time for The Next Shift. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. Over the years. <laughs> Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The advisory board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+. I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and you know incorporate it. Online and on demand at disrupt.radio.